Well, hey, how are you? It's good to see you. Nice to be back. Uh, we were uh, away for three weeks, which was nice. We weren't really away. We were here. Our kids from Germany, uh, our oldest daughter married a German guy in their church planting in Berlin, Germany. And so we don't get to see them face-to-face -face much. We call them our FaceTime grandkids, four- and six-year-olds. So they were home for three and a half weeks. So it was really cool to be able to spend that time with them and visit and brush up on my three words of German. So that was great. Have them here. Uh, and what was really cool, uh, we kind of hung out. We slipped into the services. And I was just so encouraged and blessed over the last uh, three weekends. Actually, and you, may, you, you won't know this in the individual services you're in, but nine different preachers carried the services at our various services and over these last weekends and just have had such positive review back from all those preachers. And I know we are so incredibly blessed as a church to have such a strong bench of preachers. Are you, do you not agree with me? It's awesome. So um, thanks to all of those guys who preached while we were away, and it's just really good to be back with you. Uh, special welcome, Central Abbey are joining us tonight, and East Abbey as well, so it's good to have you with us. Uh, just to, I want to make a little comment. Uh, in our services here, Freddie just prayed about Kelowna, and I'm sure in the other sites you have prayed or will be praying for them as well. I have the opportunity today to connect with a couple of the Mennonite Brethren pastors up there, and just, again, expressing their thanksgiving, knowing they have had a lot of people reach out to them saying that we're praying, we're supporting, and uh, Carolyn and I actually lived through the firestorms 20 years ago in Kelowna, so it's a bit of a deja vu for us. And knowing really it's going to be in the next three, four months where the, uh, the help of the church comes alongside, particularly for people who've lost homes where there's not insurance. And those are the challenging issues, right? So I just really want to encourage you to be in prayer for them. Uh, probably six or eight homes in the churches up there that they know of already have been lost. And so it's going to impact a lot of people. And we want to just continue to pray. Uh, I think on the news they're saying some 60,000 people are either evacuated or on alert all across our province. Uh, so Lord, would you be gracious to us? So anyway, grab your Bibles. Uh, we are in week nine in the book of Colossians. If you've been here through the summer, you'll know that. And we're wrapping up to the end, uh, just the last two weekends in chapter four, and uh, a really important text. And I know with summer vacations and travel schedules and all other kind of stuff, you may have missed a week or two here and there. And I thought as we get into this last chapter, I want to just do a really quick recap of the book of Colossians, where we have been, and just to remind you about this study. So if you have missed some of the summer, this book is one of Paul's 12 books that he has written in the New Testament, and it is one of several that he wrote while he was in prison, which makes it significantly critical that he is writing from a prison cell. It is written to a little church in a village called Colossae, so therefore the title Colossians to the church at Colossae, and that little community was part of a, a three-city or tri-city little place, Colossae, Laodicea, which is a church name you'll know from the book of Revelation and from chapter 4 of Colossians and Herapolis. And what we know is that in each one of those little communities, there was a new little church plant. There was a house church. What's unique about this letter is that Paul did not plant this church himself. So most of the letters he writes are to churches that he himself as an evangelist established, but it's not the case here. It was one of his students, a guy by the name of Epaphras who started this church. And we're like, okay, how did that happen? Well, Acts tells us in Acts 19, that Paul had a pastor's training school in the city of Ephesus out on the coast by the water. And for over two years, he trained up leaders. And there's a verse in Acts 19 that says, out of that school, out of that training institute, literally all of Asia was impacted by the students who went out from that school. That's an amazing thought as we think about leadership development. 
So Epaphras goes out, plants a church. He makes a trip later, 1,500 miles around the north, the Aegean Sea, all the way down to Rome. And he's visiting with Paul while Paul's under house arrest in Rome. And so Paul hears about this little church that one of his students has planted. And he's like, ever since I've heard about you, I can't stop praying for you. And he sends this letter, which we are going to be reading now. And it is classic to Paul's style. Paul is like, I want to anchor you deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in rich theology and doctrine. I I want you to know who you are in Jesus Christ, these little baby Christians in this small little church. But Paul is never content to leave us just with good doctrine and theology, that knowledge That teaching, that doctrine must translate into daily life. Or the question that we might ask, how then shall we live? Great theology, but what does it mean in daily life? And the theme of this ministry, for sure, is Paul's ministry uh, wrapped up in verse chapter 1, verse 28. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is Paul's goal. You start out as a baby Christian, every single one of us. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've received him as Lord, but you're a baby Christian. And I want to proclaim Jesus to you. I want you to have sound doctrine, sound theology, so that you can get your roots down deep and you can live it out. So this book is exactly Paul's pattern. Chapters one and two are just full of rich, deep, Doctrine, teaching, and theology. And if you were here the first like seven weeks, we were digging into those two chapters, just literally verse by verse by verse, who we are in Christ, the supremacy of Jesus, our identity, a new identity given to us as children of God. And then chapter three, he turns the page and it gets really practical. And he talks about our daily life. And so the last three weekends, we talked about putting off and putting on, putting off the old way of life, putting on the new way of life. And right down into all of our personal relationships, marriage and family, work, uh, masters and slaves, parents and children, the most intimate of our relationships affected by our walk with Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's where we've been. Now we're going to turn the corner in chapter 4, verse 2, and Paul's focus now shifts a bit. If chapter 3 has focused in on our personal walk of faith lived out in relationship as brothers and sisters. He now turns our eyes outward a bit when he asks this basic question, do you want to see the world around you changed? Now, Paul doesn't use those words. Those are not in the text. But I honestly believe that that's the heart behind what Paul is writing at this point in time. All this conversation about how do we live out our Christian faith inside the church, brothers and sisters, in relationship one to another, and all of that important fellowship, and iron sharpening iron, and all that great stuff. But then this question, do you want to see your city, your town, your village, however big Colossae was, do you want to see it changed for the glory of God? Do you want to see the Tri-Cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, affected under the glory of God? Do you want to see the entire Lycus Valley that you live in, 80 miles inland from Ephesus? Do you want to see your whole valley turned upside down for the gospel of Jesus? And then he's like, well, then let me challenge you in two ways. And there's two themes for the message, how you pray and how you engage the world around you, how you pray and how you engage the world around you. So we're in chapter four. We're going to read five verses, starting at verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay, in some ways, it is a simple text. It's easy to read, it's easy to understand. Paul calls us to prayer. He calls us to faithful, fervent, watchful, thankful prayer. Christians pray, he calls us to pray, straightforward. He makes it personal, he says, pray for us. Pray that I will be bold. Pray that I will be clear. Pray that God opens doors. I'm in this prison cell, but by the Holy Spirit, that he would open doors of opportunity in front of me. And then finally, he challenges them to look at the world outside, friends and neighbors, people we love who are outside the kingdom, pre-Christians, don't know the Lord yet, and how you engage with the watching world around you. Use your time wisely. Let your speech always be gracious and salty and always be prepared to give an answer. So you're like, that's great, pretty straightforward. We could say vote, yes and amen, great, let's go home, let's do it, boom. But I have to say something, so here we go. <laughs> let's walk through it. Let's dig in a little bit to the phrases. If you've been around church any length of time, you will know that from cover to cover, this book, Old and New Testament, challenges us as children of God to be men and women of prayer. So we could literally pull up dozens and dozens of texts on the subject of prayer. Uh, one of the most all-encompassing uh, commands towards prayer is in Philippians chapter 4, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. One of the most all-encompassing commands to prayer. Don't be anxious about anything. Anything, that's all-inclusive not anxious about nothing, but in everything, in every concern I have, in every issue that's going on in my family and in my life, take it to God in prayer. And then there's lots of just little bullet point calls to prayer. Romans 12, be constant in prayer. Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Luke 18, Jesus' words, you ought always to pray and don't lose heart, just keep at it. So chapter four, verse two, Paul says to these people, continue steadfastly. And that little phrase, it carries two ideas with it. It carries with it the idea of faithfulness in prayer, continue in prayer, and fervency in our prayer, that, that steadfastness. Uh, some of you may not be reading the ESV. Most of the modern English translations translate that verse B as be devoted be devoted to prayer. And, and both of those translations, continue steadfastly and be devoted, don't even grab the full emphasis of this word. In, in the original, it is sometimes translated elsewhere in the scripture, take hold of it, grab it, seize it. It's like you grab this with this fervency, I've got to hang on to it. And I think it's the difference between crisis prayers and fervent prayers. Crisis prayers and fervent prayers, and you know what I'm talking about, because we all pray in the crisis. 
So when a crisis strikes, so like right now, uh, we just talked about the fires up in the Okanagan, the fires in the Northwest Territory. There are people all around Canada that are praying right now in the crisis. When something bad go- happens in your family, finances go sideways, a job goes south, a child rebels, whatever it is. In the crisis, men and women who, many men and women who say they don't even believe in God at any other point in their life when they face a crisis will find themselves crying out to the God that they're not sure that they believe in, but God, if you're out there, I'm in trouble, would you answer my prayer? You all know those stories, right? So in the crisis, we pray. So that's great, but this thought carries with it the idea of fervency and earnestness, which carries us beyond the crisis. Because the challenge with crisis prayer is that once the crisis pass, then we kind of just get lackadaisical again. We get complacent. It's like, oh, great, made it through. Yeah, maybe thank you, Lord, but we just carry on. We're called to be watchful, watchful in prayer. Faithful, fervent, watchful. I'm going to just camp here for a little bit because this is very interesting. That word watchful is also very common throughout the New Testament. That particular word, there's, there's two or three words used that translated into English for watchful, but that particular word appears 22 times and it carries with it the idea of being fully awake, being sober-minded, being alert. So one of the translations of, of 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, right? There's our, our phrase. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The the reminder to us that we live in a spiritual battle zone, that there is an enemy of our souls, an enemy who hates anything beautiful in our lives. What God is doing in your life, your marriage, your family, your job, anything of God's blessing in your life, the enemy of our souls hates, so be watchful, be aware. He prowls like a roaring lion. Of course, we want to be alert. But what's interesting, of the 22 times that that word is used in the New Testament, 12 of them are in connection with the second coming of Christ. That's pretty interesting to me. We're going to just camp there for a minute. I don't know what you think about the imminence of Christ's return. Every generation, I remember a Sunday school teacher when I was in grade three or four, she's like, guaranteed the Lord's returning before you guys die in this generation. And I think every generation has had to ask this question, are these the days and the times and the seasons that Jesus spoke about? So Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And you're like, I don't know. I look at the culture around us and I'm like, it sure looks like what the days of Noah were described like. Can it get any worse? Surely we're living in these days. But as you read the, uh, the, the prophecies, both Old Testament and New Testament, you will see that there are two parallel but opposite themes when it comes to the coming of Christ. You will see very clearly the increasing darkness in the end days. Darker and darker and darker, and apostasy and falling away and people getting angry. And there's a phrase in Mark 13 that says the days will grow so dark that the world would basically implode on itself, and so God cuts it short for the sake of the elect. That's how dark it's going to get. The flip side is there are also numerous passages that talk about an outpouring of the Spirit in the very last days. So particularly the Old Testament book, Zechariah, and even a chunk, if you take Romans 11 and Israel coming to faith and the the revivals that are going to happen because of that. So these constant themes of darkness, and yet in the middle of the darkness, one of the greatest outpourings of the Spirit of God ever recorded in human history that literally we could anticipate tens of millions of people coming to faith in Christ just before the return of Christ. Both those themes are in the Scripture. It's like two sides of the same coin. 
And so no matter how you read the signs of the times, we know that the Bible is overwhelmingly optimistic about the final end. Amen? So Habakkuk says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The name of the glory of the Lord is going to be known. The gospel will be preached to every ethnic group, Matthew or Mark tells us, and then the end will come. The enemy of our souls here in Colossians, we are told he has already been defeated. He has been triumphed over at the cross. Jesus has already made an end of him. So as I was preparing this week, uh, this really old book pops into my mind. I, I, I forgot to look at the publication date, but it's literally, it's gotta be 50 years old. Destined for the throne, I think written back in the 70s. And he says this, prayer is not begging God to do something that he is loath to do. It is not overcoming reluctance in God. It is enforcing Christ's victory over Satan. It is implementing upon earth heaven's decisions concerning the affairs of men. Calvary legally destroyed Satan and canceled all of his claims. That's Colossians chapter 2. God placed the enforcement of Calvary's victory in the hands of the church, Matthew 18, and we're going to come back to that. He has given her power of attorney or made her his deputy, and but this delegated authority is wholly inoperative apart from the prayers of a believing church. Prayer, therefore, is where the action is. Really interesting quote. Now, he refers to Matthew 18, and the text that he's pointing at specifically is this. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm going to go down that trail a little bit further, and you're going with me because you don't have a choice. <laughs> Jesus used that very same phrase just two chapters earlier. And in a very famous text, I'll build my church, gates of hell won't stand against it, and most sermons end right there. Most of our readings end right there. Most commentaries just end right there. But Jesus didn't end there. So you go back to Matthew 16. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he finishes the statement with this. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That makes you stop and go, hmm, let's think this through. I will build my church, Jesus has guaranteed. The gates of hell will not prevail against the advancing army of my church. And by the way, I've given you the keys. Is that not an amazing thought? Do you remember the first time you handed the keys to one of your teenagers to go drive the car? You're like, oh, what am I doing? And yet Jesus says, I give you the keys. Now, I don't know entirely. I know for sure I don't fully understand everything that is implied in that context of binding and loosing, but that passage should cause us to sit up and think, what does it mean, Jesus, that you've given us the keys? So then go back to Matthew 18 and finish out that passage. If two of you agree on earth and ask about, uh, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So no wonder the enemy will do all in his power to keep us from praying, if that's the authority that we have been given in Jesus. Okay, so Paul opens his letter, I can't stop praying for you. And now as he ends his letter, he calls them to the ministry and the work and the labor of prayer, not just for themselves. So you read on into the next verse as we've already done, and Paul specifically asks for prayer for himself. 
He asks for open doors, for boldness, and for clarity. It's nearly identical to the same request that he sent to the church at Ephesus, but gave them a little more detail. So if you look at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 6, pray also for me, Paul writing again, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Almost identical request to what he sent to Colossae, but with a little more detail. Now, I find that interesting when Paul, when we know he is sitting under house arrest, so in prison, in Rome, he has a chance to ask for prayer for himself. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, hey guys, it really sucks to be in prison. And I would ask, would you just cry out to the Lord that he would release me from prison? that he would set me free, that I could get out of here. The, the, the bed is hard, the food is terrible, I need to get out of this prison cell. He doesn't. He's like, would you pray that while I'm here in prison, God would give me open doors, that he would give me opportunities as these Roman guards are coming and going, the shifts are switching, as he was able to receive visitors, the book of Acts tells us that, he could receive guests, that's why Epaphras is there visiting him. And as he's writing letters, he's like, in the midst of this circumstance I'm in, I'm not so concerned about these circumstances. Give me boldness. Give me clarity. Would you pray for me? What an encouragement that is, right? And so we pray for planters and missionaries and and evangelists and our partner ministries. Uh, uh, Every other week around this place, those of you who attend here, you know this. We put a picture up on the screen of some church planter or some global missionary, and you're like, why do we do that? Because it's important. The church is given Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And the easiest thing for us to do in a big church is to forget about these partners that are serving overseas because we never see them, right? They're gone, sometimes for three and four years at a time. And we get these little reports and we let it, and we're like, we want them to know we are praying for them. We are supporting them because we know they are on the front lines of ministry. But we need not only to be lifting up those in so-called professional ministry, Pastors and missionaries and evangelists, those kind of people, we also should be lifting up one another. Praying for our brothers and sisters, knowing, and I've said this to you so many times, as we walk out those doors every weekend, we go into the mission field that God has assigned us to. We go out those doors into our full-time ministry. So we go out those doors, and it doesn't matter whether it's a grocery store clerk or a banker or a lawyer or a, a, a concrete truck driver or whatever you do for a living, you're, if you're a child of God, you're in full-time Christian ministry. Amen? And so we go out those doors. So we should be praying for one another that in full-time ministry, in whatever the pay, the, wherever you get your paycheck from, that the Lord would open doors of opportunity in front of every one of us. That he would give us a boldness and an awareness when those conversations happen. That he would give us grace and salt to speak into them. So it dovetails so naturally right into those next thoughts. Verse 5 and 6. Paul then is like, okay, so think about those outside the church. Think about those friends, those people that you know and love who have not yet heard the gospel or maybe they've heard it but they've not responded to it. Walk in wisdom. In other words, use your time wisely. Live an examined life. Live an intentional life. Walk wisely. Live a thoughtful life. What Paul is reminding us of, whether we like to be reminded of it or not, is your time is limited. Your days are limited. And I know we all think, I'm going to live to be 80, 90 years old, because that seems to be the average these days. But how many people do you know who don't get 80 and 90 years? 
And I know this spring, there was a, a, a two-week period. We were up in Kelowna for a funeral. And the next two weeks, five people that we were connected with in relationship, two of them who were at that funeral, five people in two weeks were gone suddenly. And it was one of those seasons. And I know probably all of you have gone through that. It was like, everybody I know is dying. And I'm like, I'm shocked by that of the the, the frailty of life and the quickness of life, like we don't know, we anticipate, I'm gonna have 20, 30, 40, 50 more years of life, however old you are, but we have no guarantees. And so Paul is like, make the most of your time, invest every hour where you have the best return. In other words, don't waste your time on empty pursuits and distractions. And specifically in this context, I think be wary of meaningless arguments and conversations and controversies because he couples it to our speech, to our winsomeness, graciousness, and saltiness. And I think, in other words, he's saying, read the situation, the relationship carefully. Jesus would say, don't throw your pearls before the swine. That sounds like an incredibly pejorative statement. But Jesus is basically like, there are some people that it is useless to have the conversation at this point in time, because they will not respond. Be wise. And then when you do speak, make sure it's gracious and salty. Now that's interesting. Filled with grace, filled with salt. So grace is easy to understand. Uh, And you get this. Um, Nobody likes listening to somebody who's ranting and raving, right? So whether we see them on the news, whether we see it on social media, whether you might even happen to out live on the street somewhere, you see some protest and the ranting and the raving, like how many of you just basically close off? Like this yelling, this anger, this rant, you're like, whatever, they're on about something and I just, I can't even listen to it. Nobody likes listening to ranting and raving. And so the fact of the matter is for us as Christians, we have no cause whatsoever. We have no reason whatsoever to be harsh or rude or arrogant as we share Jesus. There's no reason for us to be rude in that presentation. Amen? Gracious. However, let me say this to you. If you add salt into your conversation, you may have some controversy. Because what does salt do? Salt changes things. Salt changes the flavor. Salt seasons. Salt heads the conversation in a different direction. Salt preserves. So in other words, something's getting rotten, dump some salt on it. So the conversation, the issue in culture, whatever it is, things are rotting and you start to speak into it. Well, not everybody's going to be glad that you're bringing your salt to the conversation. And you may have some controversy. Salt does these two things. If you go back to chapter 3, think about the speech that we talked about. Verse 8, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. The, the, The speech of a Christian should stand out from the culture around us. Get intentional, salty words. So Paul says to this young church, writes to them to encourage them and challenge them. And I think the big idea is you want to see your city transformed? Then it is going to happen one prayer at a time and one conversation at a time. And you're like, okay, great. It's all well and good. What's the connection for us? So first century Pre-Christian culture, it's in the first century, Christianity is a new thing, it's a minority sect, it's not yet uh, recognized as an official religion. A little baby church gets planted, 
But I think this question in the text goes to the age-old question, what is God's plan for cultural transformation? How does the gospel take root in a place like Colossae in a pre-evangelized community? Where and how do we see the gospel transforming people's lives and how does that take place? And I want to make this comment. I think for us in our day, in the 21st century and inside the church, it's easy for us to default into chapter three conversations because it is so relevant. How do we live the Christian life within the Christian community? Iron sharpening iron. How do we encourage and how do we disciple and how do we stand with one another and challenge one another? And that's, that's great. It's all well and good as far as it goes. But Paul is never content to leave us there. His thrust is always to point us outward, always to get us on mission, to engage and to pray and to serve. And so to get to the point in that context He basically is asking the question, will the Lycus Valley, where you live, this little tri-city region, 80 miles east of Ephesus, will it be turned upside down by the gospel? Or more relevantly, we could ask the question, will the Fraser Valley be transformed by the gospel? And if so, how? How does that happen? So let's tell some stories. So this week was Pastor Tim Keller's memorial service on Tuesday, held at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. That service uh, was unique uh, from any memorial I've ever attended. It was unique in a couple ways. One was that Tim Keller wrote every aspect of that service. Because he was dying of cancer, he knew the day was coming. He had time to prepare. There was a 28-page Pamphlet, you can download it online to follow through the service. A liturgy guide for the funeral service. He chose every hymn and he wrote a little commentary on what the hymn meant and why he chose it. He chose every scripture that would be read and he chose the passage that would be preached upon. But what was most unique about this funeral service, unlike any other I've attended recently, is there was very little actually said about Tim Keller as a person. There was no traditional eulogy There was no life story. He was born here and he did all these things and he died. There was none of that. There was no slideshow. There was no video. There were no highlights from his life. The entire service was focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, what Jesus had accomplished in the world at large and therefore what he had accomplished in his church and in his children and specifically what Jesus had accomplished in Tim's life. It was very interesting. So Keller moved to New York in 1989. And when he and his family arrived there, New York was in some of its darkest, darkest days. In 1990, you may or may not know this, New York City was declared by Time Magazine to be the murder capital of the USA. Over 2,200 murders that year. The streets were not safe. The drug trade and the sex trade were rampant. The infrastructure of the city was literally imploding on itself. Graffiti was out of control. And the subway system was the most dangerous subway system in the world. You took your life in your hands if you got on the New York subway. 20 years later, in 2010, New York City was declared the safest city in North America over a million in population. And you're like, what happened? When Keller went there, the evangelical church was 1% of the population. By year 2000, it had grown to 3%. 
By year 2010, it was nearly 10%, and today they're pushing 15% of the island of Manhattan are evangelical, and 45% of the churches on Manhattan today are brand new churches planted in the last 20 years. So you're like, what happened? Well, it's interesting. Google it. Ask the question, why did crime rates drop in New York? Just do it, and you will find a number of political papers and philosophical papers and sociological papers on all the factors that went into it. And if you pick up Rudy Giuliani's book, Leadership, which is actually quite a good read. He's got some great principles in there. It was written about this time. But if you read this book, Giuliani basically takes credit for the whole transformation of the New York City. All my, so my great leadership. I did it all. And you know what? There truly were some significant decisions made at the political level and at the social services level and all that kind of stuff, some very important. But there's another story that you will not find on Google. So five years before the Kellers arrived, another couple arrived in New York City, a couple named Mac and Maria Peer. They were the most unlikely couple to go to New York City. They were born and raised in rural South Dakota. But God placed a very clear call in their life. They had had a mission experience in Bihar, India, and there they encountered the challenge of reaching an unevangelized people group, less than 0.2% evangelical, and they experienced there missionaries from all different denominations and tribes around the world coming together regularly on Friday nights for three hours of prayer, sometimes all night through nine hours of prayer, because they knew the only possible way that the gospel was going to take root in this unevangelized place was if they got on their faces in prayer. So Pierce says it radically affected him. He lands in New York to co-found and lead two organizations, the New York City Concerts of Prayer and the New York City Leadership Center. And he went on, his story is shared in this book, The Power of a City at Prayer. It was very, very simple. He began to call pastors to prayer. They didn't do big flashy stuff. They didn't do marches for Jesus. They didn't try to rally people in giant places. They just simply church by church by church, got pastors praying, set aside a month of prayer. And to make a long story short, they published this little article called The Lord's Watch, a daily prayer guide, and they printed it out. And The Lord's Watch was based on Count Zenzendorf's 100 Years of Prayer, the Moravian Prayer Movement. And those prayers centered around these four things, prayers for revival, Prayers for reconciliation, prayers for reform, and prayers to reach the lost. And they would send out a daily guide monthly, and by the year 2000, get this number, 60,000 people were praying daily for the city of New York. In the same season, across the bridge in Brooklyn, some of you will have heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. God is building another prayer machine. So young pastor couple. They're young. They're in their 20s when they get there. And, and Symbala shares the story. He's like, I'm pounding my head against a cement wall. I'm like, Lord, I am going to give up. Like, I cannot do this. In fact, he gets so stressed out, he gets sick. Some family buys him a ticket to Florida. And when he's in Florida, he has this encounter with God. And he says, it's not an audible voice, but I heard so clearly the Lord saying this to me, that if you and your wife will lead my people to prayer and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. I'll supply all the money that's needed, both for the church and for your family, and you'll never have a building large enough to contain the crowds that I send in response. So this 20-something-year-old pastor goes back to his church, and the next Sunday he said this to them. He said, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of the church. 
what happens on Tuesday night, that's when they met to prayer, will be the gauge by which we judge the success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. So Tuesday nights, if you ever have the opportunity to be in Brooklyn, New York on a Tuesday night, you need to go to this service. I've been there. Pastor Ezra's been there. Pastor Jeff has been there. Unbelievable. There is not a seat in the house. You, they stand up outside to get in, waiting to come to a prayer meeting. There's amazing worship. And then they began to pass all these prayers around. And the people just in concerts of prayer, there's a little devotional, there's great worship, and then tons of prayer. And year after year after year, people have come to faith, miracles have happened, healings have happened. It's a crazy thing. Now, we will never know until eternity every factor that goes into the transformation of a city. Way back in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards wrote his little book, An Humble Attempt, calling the churches of New England, and it spawned the Great Awakenings. The Great Awakenings of the second and the third, and some would say even the fourth so-called Great Awakening. Uh, what we see today in that film, Jesus Revolution, all the revivals that came out of the 70s with, with all the unrest of, of Vietnam and the sexual revolution, and God pours out his spirit on a bunch of hippies, and they start coming to faith in Jesus like crazy. A decade ago, I attended this Global Cities Conference, and it was so fascinating to listen to an Indian religious sociologist, Vishal Mangalwadi is the guy's name, unpack the 1857 revival in New York and how that revival affected India. Later in the day, a Korean pastor comes, and he tells the story of how that revival in New York City basically planted the seeds for, for the gospel in Korea in the late 1800s. And those first missionaries, many of them were martyred, but they just kept coming. And the seeds were planted. And if you know the history of that nation, it has become one of the greatest praying nations on earth. After World War II and the Korean War, with communist North Korea on their borders, they began to get on their faces in prayer, so much so that the largest single congregation on earth is in Seoul, South Korea. At its peak, they had a million members in one local church. A million like, how do you gather a million people for worship? Well, I'll tell you how. They had a 25,000-seat auditorium. You're like, okay, that's great. Seven services on Sunday. Seven, nine, 11, one, three, five, and seven. But that's still only 175,000. And they wanted to reserve 5,000 seats for visitors because people are coming to faith like by the hundreds, week after week after week. So if you're a member at Yodo Full Gospel Fellowship, you get to attend church once every six weeks. That's not amazing? How would you like that? You can come once every six weeks because the Spirit of God is so much on the move. Yangi Cho says this, one of the greatest lies Satan, uh, the, one of the greatest lies of Satan is that we just don't have enough time to pray. However, all of us have enough time to sleep and eat and breathe. As soon as we realize that prayer is as important as sleeping and eating and breathing, we'll be amazed at how much more time will be available to us for our prayer. Okay, great stories, but you're like, so what? We're ending the end of this book. And as earlier, I said it's a very simple text. But I think we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. The questions are this, do we really want to see Canada transformed with the gospel? Do we really want to see North America turned around? Do we want to see the Fraser Valley impacted? Do we want to see Abbotsford Mission and the communities around us affected by the gospel of Jesus, and what will it take to drive us to our knees? So probably the most famous Old Testament text is Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
Turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The promise, if my people get on their faces, call out to me, it's a promise given to us by God. And if you look back on the historical times of great awakenings, there's two commonalities. They have all come during times of incredible darkness. During times of incredible cultural darkness. You go back and look at the Whatever it is, first awakening, second, third, the so-called fourth of the 70s, they were dark cultural times. So we got to land this baby for sure. As we head into another season of ministry, the question I wonder about is what would God do through Northview Church just simply through prayer? If we did nothing else, programs and all the wonderful things that we do as we gather together, what if we were men and women of prayer? Men and women who are actively looking to engage our culture in gospel conversations with salt and light. And I, I guess the question for me sometimes is how much darker does it have to get in the days around us before we are really driven to our knees in faithful, fervent, and watchful and thankful prayer? So most of you know, a year or so ago, I put a challenge up in front of you, and we, we printed off a couple cards. We'll throw them on the screen for you to see. I gave you this challenge, five-by-five five prayer. I said, you know what? Let's make it just practical and tangible. You can do this on your own, put it in your phone, or pick these up. They're printed out there. But what if you just took the names of five people you know and love who are far from God? Might be people you work with, might be your kids, might be your parents, might be whatever, but people you love who are far from God and you did nothing else but prayed for them. Five minutes a day, five days of the week. And so in the last couple of years, it's been really cool to hear some stories in the foyer of people coming to me and going, you know what, Pastor Mark, I've been praying this five by five prayer and here's what God's doing. And one of the coolest ones, three, four months ago, a guy grabs me in the foyer on a Sunday morning. He goes, you know, I just need to tell you this. I've been praying this five by five prayer and you need to know that three of the people on my list have come to faith in Jesus. I got to get some new names on my list. So this week I went and I had a coffee with him and I said, you know, tell me a little bit more about that story. Like, how did that actually happen and where did you meet these people? And one, one's through work and one's through a common hobby that the family shares together. But he said, you know what, it was interesting in taking that initiative, that simple initiative to actually write their names down, it felt like to me, it was like a business goal. He's a business guy. It was like a goal that I had for my business. Now it's in front of me. I must do this. And then I found myself when I'm in conversation, suddenly these people are asking questions they've never asked before. And I'm like, I prayed about it. I guess I better speak. And then the opportunity to invite to questioning Christianity and to Alpha and long story short, three of them. And I said to him, I'm looking forward to the day when you and one or two or three of these people can stand here or on a video and share that story of how you came to faith because of the prayers of a brother or sister. The other one is a prayer walking card. I think one of the best things for us to do is just simply walk around our neighborhoods. Uh, we live out in the suburbs. We drive everywhere. It's not a walking culture. That's great. Go to some place that you haven't walked lately. Drive over there and park your car and then spend a half hour walking. And just ask the Lord, open my eyes to see and hear. It's amazing what you discover as you walk through a neighborhood. As you see the homes and the businesses and, and what's going on there and asking the Lord, would you lay a burden on my heart? Would you increase my love for this city? Charles Spurgeon said this, that every convert in the kingdom is the result of the Holy Spirit's pleading in answer to the prayers of some believer. Every person in the kingdom is the Holy Spirit's work through the prayers of his people. 
So we talk a lot about the challenges of the times that we live in. But one thing that has not changed is this. God is still sovereign, and he still responds to the prayers of his people. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me at all of our sites. Stand with me. I want to pray for you, and we'll then spend some time in worship again after that. But specifically, what I want to pray for our church community is that God would pour out on us a spirit of prayer. You cannot uh, manufacture this humanly. You can ramp yourself up and be all devoted and say, I'm just going to pray. And you're like, great, that'll last a few days. We need the Holy Spirit to pour out a spirit of prayer upon us. Our nation needs the spirit of prayer poured out upon us. So let's join together. So Father, I want to pray for these men and women who are gathered here. I pray for the men and women over at Central Abbey and for the men and women over at East Abbey. And as we listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, just this very simple challenge, be constant in prayer. Let your speech always be gracious and salty. It it looks simple, Lord. But the reality of day in and day out life, it is so easy to be distracted with all of the busyness that occupies our lives. We have to go to work. We have to pay the bills. We have to fix the cars. We have to do the things of life. And we get so easily distracted. And so, Holy Spirit, I am asking for Northview Church that you would do a new thing among us. We're like 43 years old. We're not a brand new baby church. We're not just starting out. We're a long established church. But Father, would you pour out a spirit of prayer among us? Would you do it for us individually? Would you burden us for people that we know and love that you want to do a work in their life? And would you do it for us together as a church family that we would be known, if we're not known for anything else, that we would be known that Northview is a place that prays and that out of that we would see miraculous workings of the Spirit of God. So Spirit, be poured out upon us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.